on the flip side of that, like you can start a business spending $5 a day on Facebook or Twitter or one of these places. And the barriers to entry are so much lower that you don't have to think about a six or seven figure PGA tour pro sponsorship or a million dollar ad spend on the golf channel. I'm Roberto, engineer turned PGA Tour player turned businessman. And I'm Dan, businessman on the weekdays and average golfer on the weekends. On the Course Record Show, we talk to some of the smartest people in the golf business and get the inside stories and strategies driving the business of golf forward. This week on the Course Record Show, we round out our series on direct-to-consumer golf brands. Roberto talks to Mike Gottfried, founder and CEO of Piper Golf Balls. Mike's background is in digital marketing, but he set out on his own last year to launch Piper. Hope you enjoy the conversation, and if you'd like to give Piper a shot, use CRS10, that's CRS10, for a discount on their website, piper.golf. And stay tuned after the interview to hear our takeaways and hit us up on social media to continue the conversation. We'd love to hear from you. Yeah. Thanks, Roberto. I'm Mike Gottfried. I'm the founder and CEO of Piper Golf. Piper Golf offers tour quality golf balls at amateur prices. And we're really simplifying the approach to fitting and buying golf balls, a fit to your game with something for every player, taking something that can be really crowded and confusing and trying to make it as simple and fun and approachable uh, for golfers as we can. So we've got four golf balls in our lineup, Piper Green, Piper Blue, Piper Black, and Piper Gold, which align basically to our, our rankings of you know beginner, intermediate, advanced, and pro-style balls. And you can find us at www.piper.golf. Nice. So I have to ask because I've definitely, I've been to a few string cheese shows and a lot of Mo shows in my day, but no fish. So tell me where the name Piper comes from. <laughs> Naming stuff is hard. There were a lot of names that we did not go with or that I did not choose. Middle of 2020, I'm locked in a, in a home office and writing stuff on a whiteboard. And I can't confirm or deny that the name originated from listening to music, but it, it really worked out because it's simple, easy to spell. Everybody knows you know, how to say it. Uh, and it's got a little bit of connection to golf, right? You've got the bagpipe thing going on with Scotland and then you've got, maybe you piped it down the fairway. To the insiders, there may be a little bit more of a, a musical history there. Mike, what do you think makes this the right time to be able to go direct to the consumer in the golf ball space? Well, there's a lot of tailwinds right now. A year ago, at least when this started, uh, it seemed like the right time. COVID, first of all, I think was the best thing for golf since Tiger. I got my hands on some golf data. And if you look at the rounds played in 2020, um, Golf was up 40% year over year, and that includes a 20 million round deficit from March to May of 2020 when things were like totally locked down. So you take that in and, and add in the fact that COVID was the best thing probably ever to happen to direct to consumer and e-commerce, and it's a really good time to start an e-commerce focused golf ball brand. Um, I think people everywhere are more comfortable buying online than they ever were before. So it's a natural time to progress things from, e from an e-commerce focus there. Uh, and it's just a little bit easier and leaner way to start up. So I'm not saying we won't ever be a more traditional retail brand, but before we explore those other sort of more capital intensive avenues, we can get our feet under us with the tools and the, you know, marketing tools and the Shopify's and those types of things a lot quicker and to, to dip our toe in the water without really having to, to spend boatloads of money to try to figure this out. How much of the DTC model, the one that you're employing specifically is viable solely because of social media? It's hard to 
think about this without social media, right? Social media certainly gives uh, a scale and a, a breadth of voice that you didn't have prior to that. This is something that I think could probably exist without social media in the sense that golf is a community focused sport or affinity. So like with social, one of the things we're really focused on is building a community on social media and having people do some of the work for us. They have a really great experience with our golf balls and they're tweeting about it or they're posting it on Instagram or telling their friends about it. Having that happen on social media gives it a lot of amplification, but it's the same type of thing that I guess theoretically could happen within your foursome or with your buddies after the rounds. You know, we spend a lot of time thinking about social. It's where our customers are. It's where they already spend their time. We are focused on that 25 to 35 year old, call it weekend golfer with the boys, with the buddies. So they're spending time on Instagram and TikTok and otherwise, but it's certainly easier with social media than without. Carrying on the theme of social media or online presence, how do you manage your marketing economics? For example, cost of acquisition, your revenue versus ad spend. How do you think through all that? Yeah, since I am not necessarily a former PGA Tour player or current PGA Tour player or even a golf ball inventor, this is actually my real area of expertise. I'm a a marketer. It's what I've been focused on for my entire career. So Within Piper, we're really obsessed with this constant idea of uh, iteration and improvement and have our sort of daily, weekly, and big picture metrics that we're, we're checking in on and constantly improving. So cost per acquisition with golf balls, it's a little bit different than maybe some other products because golf balls are ideally something that people buy over and over again. They're consumable, right? So we're a little more open to being aggressive and spending a little bit more to get that first purchase from a customer because ideally they're going to love our balls, come back and buy buy them again without us having to market uh, again and again to do it. And so the other thing that's really great about golf balls is they're pretty low risk for the average golfer. I say to people that have never hit our balls, the absolute worst case, they're a dozen golf balls and you'll go through them and we'll never hear from you again. But we're pretty confident with our our marketing and our really simple, straightforward fitting system that people are going to love them and that they're going to come back for more. Circling back to the original question, we really start with a high level marketing efficiency ratio in mind that we want to spend as a percentage of projected sales that kind of establishes the budget. And then from there, we listen to the data. We listen to what's happening with our customers and and with our ad spend and rapidly and iteratively improve uh, our channels and our strategies and our tactics and even our creative to optimize the business. How do you compare the marketing channels? Like in terms of importance to your business, where do you rank email, Twitter, Instagram, Google SEO, how do those all stack up? Yeah, that's a good question. And for us, we're taking a well-rounded approach, but obviously can't be everything to everyone. And I would say even within our relatively small team, there's probably some disagreement about what's most important. For me, the most important thing is going to be the site itself and the SEO that comes along with it. You got to have that to have an e-commerce business. And then From there, I probably rank them according to their engagement. And so what I mean, email ranks really high because you've got a maybe 30, 40, 50% open rate on an email, which is a really quality touch point for someone who we already know is interested in our brand and interested in our products. And there's very little incremental cost to sending an additional email. I view email pretty, pretty highly in that heap. And then with social, we try to pick our spots, right? We're really keyed in and and focused on that market. I mentioned before that 25 to 35 year old male, and they're spending a lot of their time on Instagram and Instagram stories, even specifically in TikTok. So you break it down even further to say that Instagram stories and reels might be more important than 
Instagram feed. And if we can be an early adopter, brand adopter on TikTok, that's a great place for our audience to discover us. You know, we think about our, our customer and our consumer where they already spend their time and think about ways to get our brand in front of them there. Um, and we've even got ideas and plans for streaming golf on either on a course or in a simulator on a place like Twitch. We'll, we'll see what happens with some of these more creative marketing channels. Yeah, what I find interesting there is that you project the total revenue of a customer, like lifetime revenue, to be higher than in another category, which makes sense. Ultimately, we may even explore something like a subscription model where you can save on a sort of per unit or per dozen basis. We're going to make you a Piper customer for, for life. But at the same time, people have to like the product, right? So if, if they hate it, they're not going to buy again. But golf balls being the most probably consumable, maybe next to gloves are probably the next thing and then possibly shoes. But I, for one, go through my fair share of balls and buy them again and again. I'm putting golf balls way above those other categories. <laughs> have you played with, have you played with anyone recently? I mean, well, I, I renew mean, the bag every, whatever, like 10 to 12 years, those clubs probably turn over and shoes maybe once every year or two go through three or four gloves a season. But yeah, obviously balls are the one. If you go play, tees, tees oh. would be the most consumable, but golf balls are not far behind. I've played with plenty of people who go through more golf balls than tees in a round. I'll tell you that. In a hole. Only one tee per hole. You can get a lot of balls in a hole. Yeah, but to your previous point, spending via these channels is just so interesting, and it's just exploded. Yeah, that's crazy. On the flip side of that, like you can start a business spending $5 a day on Facebook or Twitter or one of these places, and the barriers to entry are so much lower that you don't have to think about a six or seven figure PGA tour pro sponsorship or a million dollar ad spend on the golf channel or something like that. Yeah. You're going to get really highly targeted golf viewers on the golf channel, but at the same time, there's plenty of people who play golf who spend their time on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter and so on and so forth. So the barriers to entry come way down thinking about the direct model as opposed to some of these other channels. Totally. The last interview we did, I don't know if you're familiar with this brand. They're out of College Park. Trap Golf. Are you familiar with Trap Golf? I am. Do you know much about their story? I don't know much. I know that they have had these huge moments in their history and their apparel drops. And it's a really cool, interesting, different brand, but I don't know too much now. Yeah. I learned about it talking to Wayne. So Wayne Birch is one of the co-founders and co-owners. He caddies on the PGA Tour and he's from College Park and we've been buddies for a long time. So long story short is they started this brand because they wanted to get golf out there to their communities. So Wayne's co-founder is a graphic design high school teacher, and they get high school kids to do the graphic design along with Wayne's partner and to work and print the t-shirts and print the hoodies, which is amazing. So right. it's a really great story. They are the opposite of you in, in background and execution. They have no strategy on social media other than just being a hundred percent organic. So no data analysis. So when you talk about the barriers to entry, their, their barrier to entry is zero and they've, well, it's, it's all, it's yeah. a great story. There's a lot, there's a lot to be said for doing it organically. Yeah. That's, you can't beat that in a lot of perspectives because it does come call it cheaper than having to purchase advertising. But at the same time, it's impossible to engineer that without it being authentic. And Trap Golf is probably the epitome of an authentic brand that has a super focused mission. Um, and we do too, but with the performance marketing side of things, we're at least comfortable thinking about the metrics and how we want to spend to get the name out there, get the brand out there and, and get people to give us a try. Yeah, makes sense. Looking forward, I know there's a lot to be excited about 
based on the kind of tailwinds, but what are the biggest risks you see for DTC going forward in golf specifically? Yeah, I got in this business for being relatively low risk, but there are real risks. And the first one that comes to mind is probably the supply chain and inventory. I think COVID has really just rocked the world from prices going up and lead times going up and shipping is an absolute mess. So if that doesn't clear up, that's definitely a risk. But specifically within golf, I think there's a sense that you're trying to sell something online that's an experiential product, right? Like golf balls, again, probably a little bit easier than clubs. I'm personally 100% not buying a club that I haven't demoed and swung and felt in my hand. So you're trying to undo people's behavior with an experiential product and get them to try buying online and then taking it out on the course. People's, again, default behavior is probably like, look in their bag. Oh, I'm low on balls. Let me go in the pro shop and buy them because I'm right here. So you got people to get people to plan ahead a little bit from that perspective. But, you know, I think that's easier to overcome again with the e-commerce tailwinds, people getting used to buying things online. And then specifically, one of the things we've done is put together what we call our sampler pack, which is a sleeve of each of our golf balls that people can take out on the course and try them without committing to a whole dozen and have a little bit of fun with it. But again, you got to be prepared to do that. And I think the fact that it's getting legs and is you see the opportunity there just speaks to how powerful and different ways there are to be successful in golf. Like PGA Superstore is booming because as you mentioned, golf is going to be the last retail standing because people want to go and touch and feel a wedge on a rainy day or go look at the new driver. Clothing might be second to that because I still like to touch and feel clothing. I don't want to just order stuff online, but golf balls are closer to paper towels than they are a new sport coat. Like you, you don't need to touch and feel it. You are more than happy to put 40 bucks down on your credit card and have it show up on the front door. Just like nobody cares where your paper towels come from. If they show up at the front door, even better. Yeah, for sure. I think you add to that, that once you've had at least, you know, a couple of good experiences with a brand, you're much more willing to try their stuff online. Again, I think clubs, which people think about with golf equipment are probably the most difficult because of the fitting process. And it's so much about feel. Now golf balls are about feel too, but you can run through a dozen of them and not have spent thousands of dollars to do it. So again, we want people to love them. We think people are going to love them, but it is lower risk to, to buy that online than say driver or even a bag or something that you've got to really physically handle. Which one has been the most popular so far? The blue far and away. And so actually I've ended up playing blues, which I always thought that a urethane cover golf ball was going to be superior. And what I found out was I'm just a high spin player. Our Piper blue balls are have a Serlin cover, which, you know, a little firmer and clickier, but spin a little bit less. I hit it farther and my, my index has also reflected that change. So I'm pretty happy with that, but the blues sold out first followed by the blacks and then followed by the greens, which are the intro balls. And then the pro style ones, the golds, again, with us being focused on maybe that weekend warrior type of player, you don't get a lot of scratch or, or better type of players trying to find their balls with us, but we'll get there. Yeah. Hi, Roberto. Having spoken to Mike and comparing and contrasting what we learned from Walker trolleys and trap golf, what stands out to you the most? Really, Mike seems to go about things the same way that Brad does at Walker Trolleys. But the biggest difference, somebody called us out on Twitter after the Walker Trolleys episode saying, hey, you guys didn't touch on the fact that Brad does all this work to acquire a customer, but that's a really durable good. That customer is not coming back to buy another Walker Trolley for a long time. 
Piper is the opposite of that. I think the direct quote was, we're willing to spend a little bit more to capture a customer because we feel like the total lifetime value could be higher because people are blasting golf balls into the woods and into the water all the time. So compare and contrast those two. Otherwise, I think they, they, their kind of approach to the marketing side uh, was similar. Yeah, it was an interesting discussion talking about the lifetime value, the recurring revenue that could be created, and the fact that it's a low-risk product. But they do really play in a crowded space, right? There's so many brand names here. Lots of companies have really built their business on sponsoring tour players and creating a facade that the amateur can be like a tour player. That's not the, that's not the path for Piper Golf. How do you see their niche really standing out with the amateur golfer? I think it's this new gen of golfers. I think it's the hoodie. The hoodie bro is going to be a Piper customer, right? The, the 55 year old guy at the club, he drives a Mercedes and he plays a Titleist golf ball. You're looking for the, the 25 to 35 Sweetens Cove guy, right? That's who Piper's customer is. And I think those guys kind of scoff at the old guard. So I definitely think there's a market out there. I mean, how many, the Jordan's golf shoes, the hoodies playing golf, all this stuff that I kind of shake my head at. My younger friends give me a hard time. Our intern gives me a hard time for being an old curmudgeon. <laughs> that's, that's Piper's target market, I think. What about the fitting system? I thought it was interesting, right? They have four different lines of balls, trying to cater to different needs. How, how, do, your, how do your buddies who call you a curmudgeon sort of feel about that, you think? I don't know a lot about that. I know that it's important to get fit for the right golf ball, but I think he's probably along the right track. Even four seems like too high of a number for me. I feel like two or three could be the right number. And he mentioned that they don't have a ton of like scratch golfers that that's not their demo. So that's their least popular golf ball. If Mike had to choose from going to four to two, he could probably do it really easily, right? You cut the elite player golf ball. And then you maybe merge two in the middle there. And you've just kind of got like, hey, I'm new to golf, golf ball. And you've got the, I'm trying to break 90 golf ball. And so I would say four is even too high, but I don't know. What do you think? I, I like the idea of it, the simplicity of it. Yeah. But I, even though I'm not a great golfer, I'm all about the idea of like, hey, let's just try it out, right? Spend yeah. 30, 40 bucks, try it out and yeah. see how it feels. And I'm not even looking sure, but I, I know how the golf ball feels if it's soft or hard. Right. And kind of tell if it's spinning a little bit. Not that I have all the numbers to back it up. Yeah. But something about that gives me, so I would totally try it out. Yeah. I actually want to turn the question on you. You've tried lots of golf balls with a much higher performance sort of threshold for yourself. How do you, how do you go about choosing a golf ball um, and, and picking the right fit for you to maximize performance for you? Yeah. Sound is a big one. I don't think it's a hundred percent, but if you put on like Bose headphones and then like put a top flight and then put a pro V you can hardly tell the difference because the sound feedback is so much of what we associate with feel. But this was something that you, every two years, I played Titleist my whole career and every two years they came out with a new generation of golf balls. And it was just funny. Sometimes they'd be different. Sometimes they wouldn't. Sometimes players would think they were different. Like Luke Donald famously played the 07, 2007 Pro V until 2018. And they finally were like, look, we're running out and this is the end of the road. But it's really tough. It's really tough, even at the very highest level, to split hairs on the 
2021 Pro V versus the 2019. So let's talk about Mike a little bit. You, you know him a little bit from your personal life. How do you know Mike? Yeah, so Mike and I are members at the same club, and we frequently surround the same body of water, which is called the kiddie pool at our club. We have kids that are the same age. And we just started chatting it up. His background, you know, as he mentioned, is in digital marketing. He founded a, a digital marketing firm here in Atlanta and then moved on, and he's is doing this, this deal now. And I believe he's moving into a different sport. He has a new brand called Pickle around pickleball, another sport that is kind of started with an older demo and is being picked up by young people. So a brand that resonates with the hoodie crowd that plays pickleball, he might be carving out another niche in a different sport, but it's been cool to see what he's doing. I tried to tease out the background of the name Piper. I, I couldn't really get him to bite. I, I'm telling you, it's some sort of like fish, like really, really deep fish esoteric thing, but he wouldn't, he wouldn't bite. <laughs> Not the kind of fish you see at the kiddie pool either. Not exactly. Not the plastic fish at the kiddie pool. Well, we all know that's where the real power lies. The real decisions given at the kiddie pool. Yeah. Let's go back to the recurring. That's obviously the holy grail. It's definitely in fashion right now. Subscription, subscription, subscription. From the biggest companies in the world down to DTC startups. They're all trying to drive subscription revenue. But to me, there's a big difference between like my Google subscription or my Gmail subscription. I am a customer for life. I cannot extract myself from the subscription. My whole life is on Google servers or when it comes to Apple photos. I think Androids, they're supposedly great, but I'm never going to switch to an Android because everything's tied up in Apple. That to me is really true subscription, true, true recurring revenue, QuickBooks. Who wants to change their accounting software once you're on one platform? Golf balls is a different thing. Even Disney Plus is a different thing. If I'm not watching it, I can cancel it. If I'm not liking this golf ball, I can try a different one. So how sticky do you really think? Do you put those in different buckets? Is it a sliding scale? How do you think about that? First of all, I'd be remiss if I didn't say Android's great. I made a switch and never looked back. So give, give it a shot, buddy. Don't, don't, don't sell yourself out too soon. Oh, my gosh. You guys are all... It, you're all making money hand over fist. I just told you I'm, a, I'm beholden to Apple. I'm beholden to Google. It's like all of them have gotten my money forever. So don't even worry about it. But yes, noted. Thank you. But I mean, there's, there is a crowd in golf that I think feels the same way about their chosen brand, whatever it is. Yeah. Now, it, it's probably really hard to break into. It costs a lot to create that kind of um, loyalty. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Deliver it with brand. You have to deliver it with constant messaging. Think Coca-Cola, right? You can switch to different different drinks and et cetera. And you know, there's challenges there for them. But the the reality is like you see the big red and the white and the bubbles and people happy like over and over and over, right? It, it creates that image yeah. very subliminally in addition to delivering on the product day in, day out with the same exact flavor. So that's a long road, but that's 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 the road to get there. Right. Yeah. And that's how you that's how that's how some of these brands got you. But this despite not having a subscription model inherently there per se, you've treated them as a subscription in your mind. Right. So that's the road for someone like Piper. Now so the the finding the right crowd that kind of likes finding the new cool brand before it's known by everyone else. That's probably where you start to get your early adopters and you keep going and then you become more and more mass market over time. Yeah. But that's, uh, that's a game of a lot of patience, persistence, and consistency. 
that that isn't easy to do and you need big product margins to sustain so i don't know anything about the, the economics of the golf ball business i know it's very different very competitive we talked with Stuart sink how nike entered and exited and wasn't right. successful in that space so but for a startup who's looking to do this from the ground up using the dtc tailwinds that mike talked about it's super interesting to see a different angle on this so the cost of you think you see that as the key metric, like just the margin on the sale has to be huge to cover all the marketing and cost of acquisition. I think so. Cause you could argue, all right, I can take a loss on my first, um, you know, dozen balls. So long as I can get 50% of my purchasers to come back and buy a second box. Right. And the long, the more you kind of keep that going, you know, and, 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 and get that, virality word of mouth getting the customer to do a lot of the work the way mike talked about right then it can pay off knowing that you're not going to get everyone in that same cycle but um but that's that's the road so i think it's, it'll take a lot of long time to see a payoff on some of those customers because yeah they'll lose balls quickly and whatever but the disproportionate payoff comes way down the line versus spending getting a very profitable sale up front banking that in buying the next customer so like walker trolleys like what you would you would think walker trolleys would be more like that other model yeah right i was fascinated by mike and his thought process he seemed very methodical he's given his economics a lot of thought both on the acquisition side with the marketing background not surprising but also he's talked a lot about supply chain as a big area of concern and risk etc What's what struck you as far as Mike's leadership style as an entrepreneur? One line I remember from the interview is that he said there's some dissent even in our small team among like best digital marketing channels. And I thought that was telling. Like he's obviously sitting in a room somewhere or virtual with his, I'm assuming, small team, but they're having open dialogue and they're disagreeing on what the best path is. So you can that immediately tells me that he's not dictatorial at all, that he's, you know, his office is, the door's open in his office and he's open to dissent and, and differing opinions, which is a big deal in leadership. And then second, he definitely seems to be taking the challenges in stride and said directly, like if some of these supply chain issues don't smooth out, it's going to be a real concern. And they haven't smoothed out and they don't, appear to be smoothing out anytime soon with the world in disarray of a different kind now with the you know crisis in Europe. So I, it's the supply chain keeps coming up over and over again. I, it's just crazy to realize how much of our physical purchasing comes from overseas and like how tenuous that really is when things start to go awry. This is about as niche as it gets with DTC golf brands, but zoom out a little bit and you can start to lose a little bit of sleep. If I don't get my Piper golf balls in time, it's one thing. It's a huge thing for Mike, but if we can't get wheat, if we can't get steel, if we can't get oil, if we can't get like basic needs because we've stretched the supply chain all over the world and there's too many disruptions now, this, this manifests in much bigger ways than DTC golf brands. That's yeah, funny. I mean, you go back a few decades, the supply chain moved overseas to diversify the supply chain. Now it's just concentrated in a different place that's even further away. Yeah. Um, and and undoing that's really hard and expensive and and, and painful. Expensive. So, 
yes, expensive in the cost of the goods and expensive in undoing a lot of the diplomacy that's been in place to establish those relationships in the first place. So um, yeah, a difficult problem, not ours to solve in the course records show here, but definitely one that's come up a lot, even at the scale of brand that we're talking to. Yeah. And I would love to get your take on this. You're from South America. My family's from South and Central America. And something that always comes up, you know, sobre mesa, which is, you know, after dinner, right? You're having a, that last glass of wine and just solving all the world's problems is that in the U.S., we're very, very accustomed to cheap goods and very expensive services. So you can go to Costco and buy so many things very cheaply. But the second you need a babysitter, or you need someone to come lay tile or redo your yard. It's very, very expensive. In South and Central America, it's the opposite. Goods are very expensive, but services are very cheap. So the upper middle class has a maid, they have a gardener, they have a chef. It's a, just a completely different way of life. And if those goods become expensive in the United States and services are not going to get cheaper, it's really, it's a shock to the system. We're just so used to cheap things. That's the bottom line. We're so used to cheap things. And when that starts to change, it's really going to hurt. And with the first time inflation is creeping up the way it is in, in many decades, yeah. we're going to find out, right? Slowly, but surely find out. Uh, the role of capital plays an interesting role here. I mean, you know, as, a, as a point of comparison, not to go too far down the, the road of Central and South America, where inflation has been higher for a long time. So we right. know this game a little bit better. Yeah. You can't buy a house. You can't finance a house in Brazil, for instance. Okay. Very hard. But you can finance a TV in many times. It's the opposite here, right? You would never finance a TV. Most people would finance their house, right? To buy it and do a mortgage. So the role of capital is an interesting contrasting point there. And we're, again, we've gotten really used to cheap capital. Yeah. And here for, for big purchases with big collateral. Now, that's played itself out into capital for companies and sort of investing. And they're sort of expecting a high return, which pushes these companies to think, let me push the supply chain overseas, get the gains, et cetera, and do it. So until expectations on return on capital fundamentally change, that's another reason it's going to make it bring also any sort of manufacturing onshoring really hard to do. So um, again, there's so many forces at play that exists with the presumption that you're going to do everything overseas for manufacturing because that's what made sense for many years. Really hard to do. Yeah. Well, the recurring theme of the course record show, we leave with more questions than answers. <laughs> Lots of questions. And uh, that's what my six year old tells me. She wakes up at seven o'clock in the morning. Dad, I have so many questions. And I say, you're not the only one. <laughs> We're going to need a lot of dinners to sort this all out. A lot of dinners. That's right. All right, Roberto, uh, why don't we leave it here? Thanks to Mike for the time. Super interesting to hear about a product we're all familiar with as golfers taking on a different spin. Yeah, thanks for listening. Check out piper.golf. Use discount code CRS10. And uh, hit us up on Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram. Some of the comments we've gotten have been really smart, really insightful, and we're here to learn. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of smart folks out there appreciate them listening, but Feel free to carry the conversation into the Twitter sphere.